We're on week two then of um, however many weeks it is. That takes us through to Easter, thinking about the cross. You can find everything you need if you missed last week at uh, the website, burlingtonbaptist.org.uk forward slash the cross. And uh, if you want to show that you're listening, you can tweet something under the hashtag of the cross. In fact, it's worth tweeting a few things under the hashtag the cross. Lots of uh, tweets are tweeted, not surprisingly, under that same hashtag for all kinds of reasons. So well worth saying something there that it's worth people uh, reading. We looked at last week how the cross was something that had been anticipated, not just through the Old Testament, but even before God created the heavens and the earth, it says it was in his heart, in his mind, the plan of how he would send his one and only son to live the life we could not live and die the death we should have died. That was the plan that was always in God's heart. And so we looked at how the the Old Testament was waiting, anticipating for the day that Jesus would live and then uh, die. This week, we're uh, thinking about uh, not the wait, not what was said a long time ago in anticipation of it, but today we're inviting you to come close, uh, as close as you dare to stand as near as you would risk to the cross on which Jesus died, to watch And in watching, to see, to hear, to understand something of what was going on in those moments. So I suppose there's just one question this morning. As you stand and watch, what do you see? What do you see? The Bible says that there are all kinds of people walking by and that there were some people that stood watching. It says that some stood at a distance, and it says that others were close enough uh, to touch him, to be there. I wonder what you're thinking this morning about how close you would dare to go uh, to the cross. And as you watch, what do you see? Crucifixion is the most barbaric, inhumane, agonizing death that probably human beings have ever devised. Developed by the Persians in 500 BC, perfected, if that be uh, an appropriate term, perfected by the Romans. It was then outlawed by Constantine 300 years after Jesus. Such was its indescribable brutality. They used a new word to describe how awful it was. Excruciating comes from the word crucifixion to capture that this was something different to the normal experiences that men and women uh, go through. On the cross, uh, a man would die of asphyxiation. You would die by simply suffocating unable to breathe as your body collapsed on the pins so that your lungs were crushed. You would keep yourself alive by forcing your body upright on both the pins on your feet and the pins on your wrist in order to release the pressure on your lungs in order to gasp for air and extend your life by a few minutes each time. 
The death that you died was as agonizing as possible. That's how it was designed to be. Very occasionally we read that a woman was crucified, usually with her face to the cross, recognizing that such was the brutality of it that no one wished to see a woman in such agony. Sometimes naked men would hang on the cross for several days. Sometimes crosses would line the highways in and out of major cities. Right through the scorching heat of the day and the cold chill of night, taunted again and again by their accusers. Some evidence suggests that crucifixion would not be high up but at eye level so that you could look those that you were judging in the eyes as they struggled for breath and as they died. A victim could do nothing to retaliate except fill the air black and blue with the words that they chose to use. Records suggest that some who were crucified had their tongues cut out to stop them filling the air with such abysmal obscenities. A victim would spit or urinate on those who would stand close. It was the only way they could hit back. It was a disgusting scene where crucified men became incontinent and blood and sweat and fetal matter filled the ground where the cross was. And many years before, Isaiah said this of Jesus, and we can understand why. His appearance was appalling, so disfigured beyond that of any man, marred beyond human likeness. Do you see the horror? Do you see the horror? The Mal Gibson film was uh, uh, criticized, uh, the passion for making it too grotesque. I'm not sure those of you who saw it and those of you who are familiar with uh, crucifixion accounts from history, w- w- would that was probably what it was like, if not worse. And so I invite you for a moment to see the horror because we, we have nice crosses generally, don't we? We decorate things with nice crosses. We think things have a certain preciousness about them, sometimes because of the symbols, and they're very uh, 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 tastefully decorated and so on. But if you are to walk close, you cannot fail to see the horror of what was going on in that brutal, bloody scene. And I think for a moment it's important to face the horror, not, not simply in order to sensationalize it. Uh, 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 We can't begin to do that. It's way too horrific for us to put words on it that would adequately express it. I think it's really important for us to see the horror, even if it's for a brief moment, because we can't bear to stare and look for too long. Important to see the horror, because the horror of the cross speaks volumes about our mess. The horror of the cross speaks volumes about our depravity, our wickedness, our malice, our sinfulness. Do you see, as you look at the cross, the mess that we are in as human beings? If we could do that to Jesus, then what on earth does the cross say? 
If God became a human being, a living, breathing, perfectly loving, delightfully good, beautifully attractive human being, and we humans would kill him in the most diabolical, the most degrading way possible, then we must be more twisted and marred than we can begin to imagine. Tom Smell writes, I think, very powerfully, when we get our hands on God, this is what we do to Him. When the divine love that we see in Jesus comes among us, not only do we fail to imitate it, but we choose to turn on it. That's what sin did. And that's what sin does. And if we claim to be without sin, the Bible says that we deceive ourselves. If we claim that what happened to Jesus on the cross has nothing to do with us because that seed of sin doesn't live in us also, then the Bible says you're just lying about the truth of who you are and what you're about. You're not being honest about the real you if you think it's got nothing to do with you. You cannot look at the cross and conclude that we're all okay. Can you? Amazing, though, it reveals the mess we were in. In fact, the more you you see the horror, the more you understand the mess. And the the horror of the cross is, in the end, so much more than the crucifixion itself. Come close and, uh, and watch and listen and see what's going on. Do you see the so much more? It was not just another man being crucified. However awful that is, it was not just an innocent or even a good man being crucified. It was so much more. Do you see the so much more of the cross? Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Jesus, as a a rabbi, would have known the whole of the Old Testament. In fact, a a New Testament, or a a rabbi in the time of Jesus, would be able to recite the whole of the Old Testament from memory. No, 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 I can't do that. The whole of the Old Testament from memory. Which means that when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows that his hearers, because even those that that, that weren't rabbis knew masses of the Old Testament because of the way they were educated, would be able to repeat the rest of the psalm. They would understand its context and its meaning. For example, if I say, our Father who art in heaven, you immediately think, hallowed be thy name. And if I say, uh, beggars can't be... So, so you will finish it even if I don't. And, and, and that's what's going on so often in the New Testament. That, that there can be a word and, and nobody has to finish it off and explain it because everybody knows. It's in the culture, it's in the psyche. So when Jesus says, take this cup, he doesn't need to explain to himself or to anybody else what the cup is. They knew what the cup was. The cup in the Old Testament was the cup of judgment. It was the consequence, the fruit of sin and rebellion. That's why when Jesus talked to his disciples about drinking the cup, and Peter said, oh, I'm sure I can drink that as well. And Jesus says, you've got no idea what you're talking about. 
the cup of judgment, the consequence, the fruit of sin and rebellion. Everything that was degrading and disgusting, everything that stood opposed to God, Jesus would take that cup. So much more than the crucifixion. The Bible says Jesus would in his death drink the cup. He would carry the weight, the judgments, the punishment, the pain, the consequence, the fruit of this world's wickedness. So much so that Paul would say, God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. That's back to where we were last week with the serpent on the pole. What a strange image for Jesus. But he carried our sin. Amen. That's what he agreed to do. Well, when he said, I'll take the cup, he wasn't just agreeing that as an innocent man, he would die the most horrific death that's ever been devised in the whole of human history. But so much more. No wonder it went dark in those excruciating hours. As sin wrapped itself around Jesus. Was it the weight of his body that was suffocating him to death? Or was it every lie and every lust and every cheat and every adultery, and every greed, and every wrong word, bad word, hurtful, hurtful word, thought, and deed, that suffocated the life out of Jesus. As he hangs on the cross, and it goes dark, the darkness, the consequence of our sin, is all he can now feel alongside the horror of what's happening to his body. And the Bible says, in that moment, worse than all, he is terribly alone. My God, why have you abandoned me? For the first time ever, Jesus is utterly alone. Sure, he'd been physically alone on a hillside, praying through the night or up early in the morning, but never like this. As he spent lonely nights of prayer out in the wilderness, his father had always been there. As he rose early to welcome the day and to offer prayer and praise, his father had always been there. But this, not this, never this. It was what Jesus had feared the most. It was a pain so much deeper than the nails, an agony so more intense than the suffocation of his lungs. He's alone. And suddenly he's like you and me. He he said, Father, where are you? Jesus is crying the kind of cries that we cry. Who who am I? Where am I? He he lost all sense of his identity. Why? Because his father and, and his identity as knowing his father and he being his father's son made him who he was. And without it, life made no sense. He he'd lost all his bearings. His life uh, lost all sense of purpose. And he cries what we cry. Who am I? 
Where am I? What am I about? The despair darker than the sky. The two who had always been one became two. Jesus always with God, now without him. The Trinity dismantled, the Godhead disjointed, the unity dissolved. The heart of God ripped wide open. Do you see there's so much more than just the nails? So much more than the scourging, so much more than the crown of thorns and the sign above his head, so much more. And incredibly, do you see the choice, his choice? Do you see the choice? He didn't need to be there. He didn't need to be there. In fact, that was one of the things that that amazed those first disciples. That he chose the cross. That it was a choice. And so Peter, when he preaches the first time, he says, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and full knowledge. Don't think for a moment this happened outside God's plan. Don't think for a moment God was surprised and caught off guard that the event spiraled out of control and God couldn't do anything about it. With the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing to the cross. But verse 28 of Acts 2, I haven't got it on the screen. It says, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That was God's choice. And as Jesus would say to his disciples just a a day or so before he died, just to make sure they had it clear in their minds, he says, look, this is how it works. I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life. What you will see as you stand and watch is something I have chosen to do. It's a path I've chosen to walk. It's a death I've chosen to die. The reason my father loves me is I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. If Jesus had a choice, then more amazing than the choice of his birth being Bethlehem and his bed being a manger and his community being a peasant social community in a, in a begotten part of the empire, the, the, the choice of his ethnicity being a hated race, more bizarre than all of that was that they should choose Father, Son and Holy Spirit, that kind of death. Do you see that? God's choice. God's choice. More amazing than anything else. Do you see the choice? And that invokes a response, doesn't it? And so the final and most important question, although there are many that you could ask yourself as you stand at the foot of the cross, I want to ask you, do you see your response in the people of the story? Do you see your response in the pages of the Gospels? Do you see your response in one or other of the characters that either stood close or stood at a distance or, or as Pilate, perhaps? As one who washed his hands of the whole thing. What was Pilate saying? Pilate was effectively saying, I'm not really sure what to do, I'm not really sure why he's going to die, but, but this death of Jesus, it's got nothing to do with me. If God should choose that kind of death, I suggest it's got everything to do with us. 
And, and Pilate was utterly wrong in his delusion. Interestingly, it was his wife who understood. Beware when your wife says, I have a dream. And he washes his hands as if to say that this doesn't affect me. This doesn't involve me. But, but as you watch and as you think and as you understand what was happening there on the cross, it's got everything to do with me because it's my sin that puts him there. He's there because of what I've got wrong. He's there because of the wrong that's in me. He's there because he chose to do something about the mess that I was in. It's got everything to do with me and you, hasn't it? You can wash your hands all you like. And people go through life saying, well, whatever Jesus was, whoever he was and whatever he did, it's not really got anything to do with me. So, so, so wrong. It's got everything to do with you. Do you see your response to the cross sometimes in Pilate? What's that got to do with me? Or maybe in another character that we don't think about too much in the gospel story, about Judas. Judas. Judas who couldn't cope with what he'd done. Judas who, when he he realized the full impact of the mess and the mistakes that he's made, decided he couldn't go on and he hung himself. It's a tragic, tragic part of the story, but many of us can relate to that. Not that we've gone off and killed ourselves, but that we've checked out of the process. We've checked out of walking with God because we think that what we've done, that the situation we find ourselves in, is somehow too great for God to fix and God to sort out. And so we hide away like Judas did. And churches are full of people who who spiritually are hiding away because they think, well, if what's happened to me gets exposed, then I'm stuffed. I've messed up too much. Maybe we see our response in Judas. Yet when Jesus said it was finished, it was finished for all time and for all people. Isn't it a tragedy? That within hours of Judas checking out of the process, God did everything to fix him. Didn't he? Hello. You see, even Judas can find Jesus. Everything to fix him. And the thing about the Bible, sorry, the thing about the cross, it's not just that the cross deals with my sin, the cross also deals with the effects of other people's sin on me. You notice what Isaiah says. He talks about how um, Jesus took up our infirmities, the hurts and wounds that others have have caused us and carried our sorrows, the, the pains that we ourselves have received from other people's sins, as well as saying he was pierced for our own sins, our own wrongs, and our own transgressions. But the tragedy is that so many times people say, well, either, either God can't fix me because of what I've done, or God can't fix me because what people have done to me, and they hide away like Judas. And they check out on walking with God. And maybe they still come to church, and they still do the stuff. But in their hearts, they're hiding away. The cross says, there's no need to hide. 
And then there's the contrast, isn't there, between Judas and Peter, uh, who both let Jesus down, who both messed up, who both failed. One ends up hanging on a tree, the other goes on to be the solid foundation of the early church. Why? Because one understood what the cross was doing. Where are you in that? Where are you in that choice? Then there's the women at the cross. I've got to be there. Mega dangerous for women to be out like that at the cross, hanging around with all those soldiers, staying there while it was dark, vulnerable without the normal structures of society to protect them. Not least the horror of watching your own son die like that. Not only the horror of watching the mother of that son who is your lifelong friend, these friendships as they huddle together beneath the cross. But I've got to be there. Incredible faith, really. If that's where God is, if that's what Jesus is doing, then I've got to be there. Despite the risks to myself, despite the horror of the situation, despite all that I might face, if that's where God is and I'm devoted to Him, then I need to be there too. Do you see your response in those women? There are times when I forsake myself, I trust in Him, I find myself devoted and end up in a place I'd I'd rather never be. But somehow in all the mess of life and all the pain of death, God is there at work and so I'm there too because I want to be with Him. And then there was Joseph and old Nicodemus who decided in the death of Jesus that it was time to break cover. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He went public. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, under the cover of darkness. Joseph and Nicodemus. If that's what he does for me, then it's time for me to break cover. If that was about me, then it's time for me to stop hiding away. And as you look into the eyes of the man from heaven, it doesn't matter how hard your heart is. It's a job to have a Heart harder than a centurion. A centurion who'd supervised countless crucifixions. Nailing people to wood was commonplace, happened every day. How hard is your heart to watch men die like that every day? How hard is your heart? How hard is your heart when you break legs of men to stop them breathing so they die quicker? Yet something about Jesus reached his heart on this violent hill of death. What was that? One assumes he'd never heard Jesus preach. 
He'd never seen Jesus heal. He'd never followed him around the villages. He'd never watched him still the wind or multiply loaves. The only thing this centurion saw was how he died. And it touched his heart. I want to ask you this morning, have you seen how he died?